Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for our creation, preservation, and your promise to make all things new. We confess our continued failure to live as your people in our selfishness and insecurity and fear. We pray that you plant your spirit within our hearts so that we will every day grow into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who is the true representation of what you are like and of what a renewed humanity can be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So today is Trinity Sunday, where as a church we peer into the mystery of the Trinity. Peer, but not explain it. Uh, not, at least not very well. I'm not going to be able to explain it. The word Trinity is nowhere found in the Bible. But in our readings from the CSI lectionary today, we have read together as a body the most significant passages that help us understand something of the inner life and inner dynamics of God. And we won't be looking into that for the sermon today, but I would invite you to examine the readings from the CSI lectionary that we read, 2 Corinthians and Ezekiel, and our prayers during the liturgy and the hymns that we sing to help you understand why it is that we Christians confess that the one God is three persons and that the three persons are one God and what promise that holds for all of us. But today we are nearing the end of our series on the vision for the Austin CSI Mission Church. Uh, our next series we're actually going to do uh, basically from now until the beginning of Advent in the first week of December. We're going to do a deep dive into the book of Acts. Acts has 29 chapters, so a little less than 29 weeks. We're going to combine some chapters, but that's going to be what's next for us. We're going to be looking at the book of Acts. But today we are going to be ending uh, our talk on the vision for our church. And I have to confess some, some nervousness when I say something like, I'm explaining to you the vision for our church. Because I want to be clear, this is not a corporation. This is not, uh, the, the criteria for success for a corporation in the economy is not really the criteria for success that we should apply to this church. The purpose of articulating the vision for this church is not to lay out criteria for determining whether we are quote-unquote, successful. The vision that is in our mission statement is really about explaining what it means to be a church of Jesus Christ in our specific context. CSI, second generation, in Austin, Texas. It's taking what it means to be a church, any church, anywhere, and applying it to our specific context. That's what we've been trying to do these last two months, really, that we've been in this series and so that means that every church should be absolutely centered around the gospel. To be a member of the church is to be a living proclamation that Christ has defeated sin and that a path to union with the one true God is available for everyone. We're called to be a people in the world but set apart from it, pointing the way to reconciliation with the Father. Accordingly, the mission of the church is to overturn our preconceived, flawed understandings of the world and our place in it so that our tendencies to sin and selfishness are transformed into a reckless love for God and for neighbor. In this way, the church proclaims that we are more than our ethnicity or our social class, more than our bank account or our college degree. We find our very identity in the person of Jesus Christ. 
That's what it means to be the church. So every church needs to be about worship, which is in our mission statement. Every church needs to form its people through its prayers, through its songs, through its sermons, through the sacraments, into people who don't just worship God in the abstract, but worship the triune God, the God revealed in Jesus Christ, who wishes to dwell in our hearts as the Spirit. Every church needs to be about evangelism. It needs to be evangelical so that it is distinct from the society around it, and yet, at the same, and yet at the same time so blesses the society around it that it both repels and attracts people so that they are drawn to Christ. And every church should be forming its members so that they know what the gospel is and have relational integrity where they do not hide their ultimate allegiance to King Jesus, but share it eagerly with other people out of love for them. Every church needs to form people as disciples. Every church needs to be about discipleship so that as members of the body, we are formed to the most inmost cores of our beings where our loves and desires are shaped toward Christ and toward our neighbor. And therefore, we are trained and equipped to display that love for Christ and our neighbor, even in the most public positions in society in school and work and politics and culture. That's what it means to be disciples. And every church needs to be a real Christian community, one that does not exclude other people in order to make itself feel more secure, but constantly brings in and elevates the marginalized to participate in our lives as a witness for how God is constantly bringing us in to participate and enjoy his life. Every church needs to be a site of real social justice. That's what we talked about last week, where we show not only our special concern for the poor, but solidarity with the poor. Because just as our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, became poor for our sake so that we could be rich, we are eager to impoverish ourselves to bless our neighbors. That's what it means to be the church. And that brings us to the last topic for our vision series, cultural renewal. Every church ought to be a colony of heaven that does not conquer the culture in which it is in, nor does it withdraw from the culture it is in, and nor does it assimilate to the culture in which it is in. Which it is in. But instead, we bless, we renew, and beautify the culture we are in. That's what Jesus means when he tells his disciples that they are to be salt and light for the world. They're supposed to bring illumination, healing, and beauty to the world. They're supposed to bless the world. So that's our topic for today. We at the Austin CSI Mission Church want to be a church that facilitates cultural renewal in Austin, Texas. So first of all, let's define some terms. What is culture? When you study the etymology of the word, culture originally meant something really close to farming where basically you are taking pre-existing material and ordering it and shaping it in such a way as to produce more. So you cultivate the land so it bears crops, that sort of thing. But by the 18th century, the word took on an additional valence, an additional color, so that now sort of uh, civilizing reformers believed we needed to culture human beings. We needed to take pre-existing human nature and human material and order and shape it and refine it, educate it to make it more civilized. But by the middle of the 20th century, sociologists were using the word culture in the way that we mostly use it today to refer to something more all-encompassing. 
The word culture now refers to the shared beliefs and values of a society that give it meaning. And so when you examine the culture wars of America that are dividing us today, you see that the root of so much of our conflict, uh, political, racial, economic, is that we are a deeply fragmented society where there is no consensus on what gives meaning. So to say that we have a common culture, it, it's still true in some ways, but in a lot of ways it's contentious. Because the common questions in our society today are things like, well, what are our common values? How do we know? Who says? Why should I care about your values when I have my own competing set of values? Whose values take precedence? And Christians are called to be a force for cultural renewal in every culture in which it is present. And so how best we are a force for renewal in the culture differs based on the culture that we are in. So the way the church works for cultural renewal will be very different in India, and it will be different in the Middle East, and it will be different in Africa, and it will be different in North America. So I'm talking specifically about cultural renewal in 21st century North America. And I'm going to be relatively brief on these first two points and then dive in deeper on the last point. Basically, to be a force for, cult for cultural renewal, we must understand first what it means to be a Christian culture, second, understand the culture we are in, and finally, we have to adopt a posture of faithful presence of Christian culture within the wider culture around us. So we have to first understand what it means to be a Christian culture. Second, we have to understand the culture that is around us. And second, as a Christian culture, we have to adopt a posture of faithful presence within the culture around us. That's the way we relate to the culture around us. So let me go into this in a little bit more detail. First of all, we have to understand what it means to be a Christian culture. So turn to Romans chapter 12, and I'm just going to read the entire chapter. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds, so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but to think that so sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and, all, and not all the members have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually we are members of one another. We have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, prophecy in proportion to faith, ministry in ministering, the teacher in teaching, the exhorter in exhortation, the giver in generosity, the leader in diligence, the compassionate in cheerfulness. Let love be genuine, hate what is evil, hold fast to what is good, Love one another with mutual affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not lag in zeal. Be ardent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in suffering. Persevere in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and extend hospitality to strangers. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. 
Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Do not claim to be wiser than you are. Do not repay anyone evil for evil, but take thought for what is noble in the sight of all. If it is possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. No, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. For by doing this, you will heap burning coals on their heads. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, this passage is very rich, but I'm going to be brief and just highlight two things. First, what I just read to you at length is chapter 12 of a long letter Paul wrote to the churches in Rome, which many consider, and I would agree, is probably his literary masterpiece. And if you ever try to read, read it all the way through, it can be a little confusing, but at some point we want to tackle that letter, so that might come later on in this year. Uh, and for 11 complex chapters, Paul has been drawing on the history of mankind from Adam to Abraham to Israel to Christ to explain the gospel. And that gospel in a nutshell is this. All people are sinners in that all of humankind is enslaved to idolatry, death, and the devil. But God gave us the new Adam, the seed of Abraham, Jesus Christ, who sacrificed his own life to win us from the devil. So that now when we are baptized into his name, we die his death and we rise to his new life. That's Romans chapter 6. And so now God sees us as his capital S sons who are working with him, who are participating with him in his project of restoring the world. That's Romans chapter 8. And we have inherited all the blessings from him. And so then Paul completes that long argument in chapter 11, and he gets to chapter 12, which I just read to you, and he starts it with a big, therefore, in light of everything I've just told you about the gospel, therefore, this is the way you are supposed to live. This is your new culture. These are the new shared values and beliefs that you hold. So the first point to remember is that Christian culture is a result of believing down to your very core, that this gospel is true, that Jesus Christ, the Son of God and Messiah, was crucified for your sake and raised from the dead and now rules as Lord of the world, and that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are united to him, because that is now the lens through which we see the rest of the world. It, it forms us into this very unique culture. And the second point is that the characteristics of this culture are purely imitative of Jesus. Because of Jesus, now we can be the real human beings we were supposed to be like Jesus. Jesus was the sacrifice. So verse 2, we must be living sacrifices. Jesus used all his gifts to serve and elevate us. So as Paul says in Romans chapter 12, now we use whatever gifts we have to serve and elevate each other. Jesus blessed those who persecuted him. So Paul tells us we have to bless those who persecute us. Jesus conquered death with life. And that's why Paul tells us at the end, we have to conquer evil with goodness. Those are the characteristics of our culture. There's a lot more in this chapter to be explained. And at some point, again, in the future, I hope to do a series on Romans. But for now, that's the main takeaway for us from this passage. 
Christian culture is totally derived from Jesus, and it forms us to look and behave like Jesus. That's Christian culture. So next, second point, we have to understand the culture we are in. As I said before, our culture, American culture, is more divided today than ever before. And that's because it is going through a profound period of demographic change, loss of confidence in its own cultural institutions, increasing diversity, less trust. I would argue that we as a culture, as an American culture, are increasingly living on borrowed cultural capital from a Christian past while we are separating from Christ at the center of the culture, and that's at the heart of our problems. And let, and let me get, go into that to explain that a little bit more. I'm not going to be able to explain this in detail, so if you have questions, ask me after or email me, or, and we can definitely talk about it more, because I know almost every sentence I'm saying for this point could be argued with, but I think it's true. Uh, here's the overview. Historically, order in ancient Western societies was built on a foundation of respect, power, and fear. If you're a history buff, if you're a person who's into philosophy, you can recognize this. These societies, these ancient societies, the Romans, the Greeks, the Germanic tribes, the Anglo-Saxons, the Gauls, were brutal to the weak because that's the way to survive. They, you know, if, if someone strikes down uh, your kinsmen, you massacre their entire family because that's the way to keep order, order by fear. They subjugated women, they practiced slavery, they killed undesired infants. And the early Christians, when they started to move throughout Europe toward Western Europe, were continually creating these alternative social structures embedded within the larger society where they sought the good of the weak and vulnerable because they recognized that all people belong to God. And over time, they, they transformed Western society. And this was a very long process, and it was always incomplete. So we can look at examples later on of American slavery and American injustice towards women and all the rest. But what you see is a continued articulation of this principle that at the heart of Christianity, we are supposed to be like Christ in how we love God totally and in how we love our neighbor totally. And this created a spirit, uh, an animating principle that drove us toward a recognition of something like human rights, that all people deserve dignity. And the story of America's, one story at least, of America's founding is that it was a place where many English colonists were trying to create a pure Christian society. But because of the religious wars in Europe where many different factions of Christianity started interpreting things differently and killing one another and persecuting one another, and it's a huge tragedy uh, that actually we are celebrating this year as the 500th year of the Reformation of the Church. That's another point. Um, because of a result of all these religious wars that started really 500 years ago, these colonists, when they came to America, all had different ideas on how best to create that pure Christian society. So the Puritans were very different from the Pilgrims, and the Pilgrims were very different from the Anglicans, and the Anglicans were very different from the Baptists, and the Baptists are very different from the Catholics. And they're all coming for religious freedom to America, especially in the early days of the colonies, but they all disagree on what a pure, perfect Christian society should look like. So what ended up happening is they created a society of relative religious toleration 
where the state would not endorse any one religion as the true religion, and each community could pursue its vision of what God is like in peace as long as they tolerate the other communities. But to be historically accurate, we have to admit there were, while there were, you know, some early Muslims in early colonial America and there were some Jews in early colonial America, mostly these religious communities were broadly Christian. And so even as they deferred in a lot of interpretations, they also shared uh, a lot of at least religious vocabulary and religious understandings. However, over the last century, two big shifts have happened. And please don't misunderstand me. I'm not, I'm not trying to say that these shifts are bad, necessarily. I'm just saying that they've happened and that this explains the culture we are in today in 2017. So the first shift is that many in the West, including in America, lost confidence that Christianity is true. And, and that's for a variety of reasons. Partly in the West broadly, there was a crisis of faith after the two world wars, you know, huge tragedies. There was also the challenge of scientific evidence. How do we integrate evolution, belief in evolution, Darwin's findings, science's findings on the age of the universe, those kinds of things with our understanding of the Bible and different traditions had different answers to that. And a lot of people ultimately threw up their hands and said, these things cannot be reconciled. Christianity must obviously be false. But even as many in the West, including in America, no longer believe that Christianity is true, they still wanted to hold on to Christian-derived ideas, Christian-derived concepts of equality and mercy. Many had adopted a materialist understanding of the world, materialist in the sense that matter is the only thing that truly exists, but they still wanted to believe, maintain a belief that all human beings bear equal dignity and are of equal worth and all the rest, which if you really investigate materialist uh, presuppositions, that doesn't necessarily lead to a conclusion that all people are of equal worth and dignity and have certain quote-unquote human rights. But again, as a matter of historical accuracy, those beliefs grew out of a Christian belief, at least originally, that all human beings bear the image of God and so deserve to be treated with respect. So now there's a belief in society that we can keep the fruits of Christianity, things like human rights, while evacuating actual belief in Christ as a divine figure from the center. And the second big shift is obviously immigration, which I want to be clear is a hugely great and wonderful thing, both for America and for the immigrants who came over here. Obviously, we are the children of immigrants here. But in, in the course of becoming more like this global society, American culture comes into contact with, and to some extent, let's be, let's be honest, conflicts with the new cultures and religions that are brought over here. And in the face of that kind of contact, many people are pushed into a more tribalistic way of being, a more tribalistic mindset where now the questions they're asking aren't necessarily questions derived from Christianity, but questions more about ethnicity or questions more about, is this person my type of person or are they other? Are they us or are they them? And so a lot of Christians in 2017 have reacted very poorly to these changes. And that's why I think we are in so many of the political and racial and economic struggles we are currently in. Because selfish human beings organized in society 
naturally tend to seek power and status, and they will try to do so in whatever means are available to them, no matter if it means that they have to step on the heads of other people in order to climb up to the top. That's what really the story of the Bible is. That's what, you know, in, in the beginning of Romans, people don't like to talk about concepts like sin anymore because it seems so judgmental. But if you understand that basic fact about society, we are so eager to climb on the backs of our neighbor. That's sin. That's selfishness. And it's inevitable. That's our natural state. We will use markers like class or education or wealth or race to create a set of us who are over and against a set of them. And Christians believe that without Christ as the reference point, mankind naturally reverts to this kind of conflict and selfishness and setting up of social groups, you know, some of whom are privileged and others whom, of which deserve to be oppressed. So it's my belief that the churches in North America today find themselves in this unique post-Christian culture, where Christian thought is still present and a lot of cultural institutions actually derive from Christianity, but those Christian ideas are weakened and they're challenged. And in the face of that challenge, even people who claim to be Christian don't really understand Christianity. So that now Christianity has sadly become just another tribe fighting for its own power, not the sacrificial bride of Christ. And it's this last point I want to expand on for my third point at greater length. The church has sadly responded to our current cultural moment in three bad ways. And I want to suggest that the way for our church to be a church for cultural renewal is to be a place of peace in the cultural wars. It's to find a fourth way, which I think is the biblical way outlined in Romans chapter 12, which I read earlier. So there are three wrong ways the church is responding to our current post-Christian culture and one right way, that I, which is the way I want our church in Austin to respond. The three wrong ways are defensive against, purity from, and relevant to. And the right way is faithful presence within, which again, is, I think is what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 12. So let's start by describing the models. Defensive against. In the defensive against model, and, and by the way, these ideas come from a book uh, by James Davidson Hunter. I'm forgetting the name of the book, but just so that you don't think I'm so smart and came up with this on my own, I did not. It comes from his book. Uh, the book came out, I think, around 2011. It's been pretty influential in churches, uh, and I read it a few years ago, and it stuck with me. So that's where I'm getting this from. So in the defensive against model, Christians respond to the crochet the post-Christian environment by participating in politics. They try to take Christian values and codify them in laws. And this mindset mistakenly believes that culture flows from power and politics, when in reality, politics and power is a lot more downstream from culture. If the culture has changed, the politics is going to change almost inevitably. You can try and curb it or shape it in certain ways, but the river is still coming. You're not going to be able to dam it up. By concentrating on po po political power, these well-intentioned Christians sully their religion in the minds of their fellow citizens because they seem no different from other selfish special interests that seek power to enact, to enact their own preferences for their own gain. 
this, uh, everyone knows what I'm talking about here, right? This describes the approach of the religious right in American politics. And I, I would go even further and say that in seeking power by grasping for it, the, these defensive against model type Christianity is unfaithful to what Christianity is, actually is. Where Christianity is not about grasping for power, but recognizing that all of us, even the weakest of us, have some area of power in our lives, and we give it up out of love for the other. That's what Christianity is about. So defensive against churches are really lying to the world about what Christianity is, and that's why it's so tragic. So that's a wrong way to go. Another wrong way to go is the purity from model. Christians seek to distance themselves from post-Christian society. They believe any attempt to engage with or reform society is inherently corrupting. You try to save the world, but you end up looking more like the world. That's the idea. So instead, purity from Christians seek to form countercultures that focus on sharing the gospel with individuals and raising children who hold fast to Christian beliefs. And, and that's it. Don't try and change the world. Just focus internally within the church. It's understandable, uh, I think, why the purity from vision appeals to a lot of our parents, first-generation immigrants from India, who not only want to stay true to the faith, but also pass down cultural values. And so they think, you know, stay away from the world. Just stay within the four walls of the church. But this vision is incomplete because as I think the church in India continues to show, Christian witness is only complete when it includes service to the weakest and most vulnerable members of society out of recognition that they belong to God, whether or not they are Christian. It's not just about the poor within the four walls of the church. It's about the poor everywhere. We are called to sacrifice and serve the weakest and most vulnerable members of society in the world, not just within the church. And that service demands that we seek the good and the peace of the cities and communities around us. We can actually look to, uh, even in the Old Testament, Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 29, where God, through the prophet Jeremiah, tells the Jewish exiles who have been captured and enslaved in Babylon, to, he commands them to work for the good of Babylon, even though the Babylonians are not Jewish, because he wants them to serve them, and that's, that's the way we need to be as well. So purity from is also the wrong way to go. Finally, relevant to. If purity from, I think, represents the failings of the earlier generation, the first generation that wants to keep everyone within the four walls of the church, I think relevant to represents the failings of our generation, the second generation. So out of dissatisfaction with worship practices, frustration with ceaseless personality conflicts in politics, church politics, alienation from Indian language and culture, a lot of us second generation folks believe that the correct response is to adopt a newer, more fashionable form of church. We should welcome the instinct to make Christianity alive and relevant, and relevant, but relevant to Christians face their own set of problems. By overly focusing on what we get out of church, we risk being consumers who put our own needs ahead of Christian calling, which is often a calling into service and sacrifice. Relatedly, an obsession with relevance leads to church hopping, right? I think so many of you guys can identify with that, where we seek out a church that speaks to our specific desires rather than submitting to where God wants to plan us. 
In doing this, we come to worship a God of our own fashioning instead of submitting to a God who has already revealed himself in Jesus Christ. So finally, uh, come to faithful presence within. Professor Hunter in his book identifies faithful presence within as the correct model for a Christian response. And in a discussion with Christians in Britain, Tim Keller from Redeemer Presbyterian Church, I know I'm quoting him all the time, sorry. Tim Keller explored what it means for a church to maintain a faithful presence within post-Christian societies. So first, notice faithful presence within, presence. This response commands presence, not control or conquest, and not withdrawal or purity. The church should participate fully in all the means of culture, in medicine, in law, in entertainment, in politics, in nonprofit sectors of, the, of society, in business. The church participates fully in culture, meaning that instead of seeking to advance selfish interests or to assert the superiority of our ideological or religious tribe, our Christianity commands that we seek no other agenda than to serve what already belongs to God, which is everything. Second, this response is within culture, faithful presence within, meaning that it integrates our Christian beliefs with our cultural practices. In India, historically, like for the Church of South India at least, this has meant the missionaries came to lead fights against poverty and spread education and spread concepts of women's rights. In in North America, where there is less material poverty, the church should address people's loss of meaning and loneliness and loss of community. And finally, this response has to be faithful, faithful presence within. The danger of getting involved in post-Christian society, as, other, as purity from folks recognizes, is that we risk becoming more like the, the society we're trying to change. So in explaining what it means to be faithful, Tim Keller refers to the passage in scripture I talked about earlier where Jesus instructs us to be the salt of the earth, but warns us that salt that loses its flavor is worthless. There's a temptation for, especially for us second generation folks born and raised in North America, to try and prove that we fit in with the culture around us by adapting our beliefs to be less threatening to the ordinary course of business and society so that we fit in. So we don't challenge people on their views of money. We don't challenge people on their views of government. We don't challenge people on their views of sex and sexuality and gender. We don't challenge people on their views of war. All of those things are areas of culture that we need to be engaged within. And if we give in to the temptation of backing off so that we're not threatening, so that we don't lose friendships, so that we seem... um, more acceptable to people, then we'll lose our flavor. And like Jesus said, we will become worthless. We won't be real salt. Salt that loses its saltiness is worthless. As a church, we need to understand that to work for cultural renewal, we have to do more than just teach Sunday school and youth group in order to disciple our young people into committed Christianity. Sunday school and youth group are great things and they're necessary. And, I'm, and I seriously believe that there's a huge role for them in terms of catechesis and training up young people to grow into the image of Christ. But we can't end there. In modern Western society, especially in America, a lot of our life, the first 25 years for a lot of us, uh, maybe even longer, is spent in school. And then after that, 30 or 40 years are spent in work. 
And so we cannot limit Christianity to what happens in church on Sunday. We have to find ways to integrate our faith with our colleges, with our grad schools. We have to find ways to integrate our faith with our work. We have to integrate our faith with the rest of our lives, with our marriages, with the way we raise our children, with the way we, raise, we treat our parents when they're in old age and can't support themselves. So we have to ask ourselves questions like, what does it mean to be a Christian lawyer? Are there cases I can't take? Are there practices I can't engage in? Are there cases I have to take? Are there practices I have to engage in? What does it mean to be a Christian doctor or nurse? Is there a particular way that I minister to my patients as a doctor or a nurse or a professional in the medical field? What does it mean to be a Christian engineer? What does it mean to be a Christian businessman? How do I relate to prophets? What does it mean to be a Christian teacher? Surely I have to have some vision for what it means to be a good human being in order to teach someone to be that kind of human being. So what does it mean to be a Christian teacher? Paul says two things in Romans chapter 12, that we are supposed to be living sacrifices, that's in verse 1, and that we are supposed to not conform to the ways of this world, but instead be transformed by the renewing of our mind, that's verse 2. And so we have to answer what it means to be a living sacrifice that doesn't just buy into the ways of the culture around us in our careers and in the way we lead our sexual lives and our families and the way we spend our money, everything. If our churches can't provide an answer to these questions through theological training and vocational mentorships and community life, we deprive ourselves of a powerful tool for being a faithful Christian presence within America. And it is by being this faithful presence within the culture, not trying to conquer it, not trying to withdraw from it, and not trying to assimilate to it, that we can help heal this culture. The church is called to be salt and light for the world as an act of worship toward Jesus Christ, who liberated us from bondage. Jesus Christ gives us his own spirit so that we can be this faithful presence within, a culture that does not advance our own interests, but sacrifices them to love our neighbors. And in this way, by being a faithful presence within America, within Austin specifically, we can witness to the world and to Austin the reality of the Father, who gives all the world good gifts and who longs for all of us to be reconciled to one another and to him. Let's stand and affirm the creed together.